0: So we recited the uh, four directions for the Brahma-Viharas. And that form of that is a very beautiful. It might remind you, there's four tetrads in there. Four Brahma-Viharas, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And each one are radiated in uh, four directions. So that might remind you of a form that the Buddha uses. The... Anapanasati sutta, the mindfulness of breathing, is also four tetrads. It's a nice organizational structure for the mind, isn't it? It just seems so easy to remember four of this, four of that, and there's four of them. And it's just very formulaic. It's also very impersonal. So all you're doing is radiating to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, beings. And so... One of our problems perhaps, our confusion, when we try to radiate loving-kindness, is that we have taken it personally. The whole culture talks about who you love and about yourself. So it personalizes everything. Everything's personal. But when we get into the spiritual domain, especially the Buddhist spiritual domain, nothing's personal so this is actually a great relief you don't have to reflect on the individual characteristics of anything including yourself you're just one of those beings and a lot of people have trouble with radiating it for themselves but if you imagine yourself you're just one of the beings to the north to the south to the east to the west while well, you're in then and in order to depersonalize yourself, so you're radiating loving-kindness to yourself. I talked quite a bit about it last night, why you can't do that, or why you have problems with it is because you see your own mind, you personalize everything. You have to depersonalize. The Buddha himself did not take himself personally. And he quite paradoxically said to people who were standing right in front of him that they could not see the Buddha. Somebody asked him, well, what will? can I stay in touch after you die. (laughs) He said, you can't get in touch even now while I'm standing in front of you. (laughs) You cannot meet the Buddha. The whole teaching is this. There is no Buddha. There is no you. There is no anybody. And the only way you can contact that truth is when you see somebody, you see Dhamma. So he said, whoever sees Dhamma sees the Buddha. Whoever sees the Buddha sees only Dhamma. You don't see the Buddha. When you see the Buddha, you don't see the Buddha. You're only seeing Dhamma. Dhamma is the truth, that there's nothing solid, lasting, enduring, essential. There are only processes flowing, endlessly flowing. When you see clouds... You do not see castles, (laughs) even though they look like castles. You put your hand through them, nothing to them, no substance. Reality is just cloud-like. The Buddha gives a whole bunch of series, series of similes about the nature of reality, like a bubble or foam on the water. Of course, they were living in nature, so when you're near rapids and so forth, you see... Sometimes foam appears on on the surface of water. And the nature of foam is it looks solid, but when you grab it, nothing. All you get is a a wet hand. So this is the true nature of reality. Not scientific, although it is scientific as well, but uh, the Buddha is not interested in scientific exercises, which are only uh, functions of the intellect. The Buddha would have been a very obscure and forgotten North Indian philosopher. Like, I would ask everybody in the room to name off four science philosophers from the Greeks, 5th century BC. (laughs) There were. There were plenty of them. They had atomic theories and all kinds of stuff. I can name one, Democritus. That's why you have an atomic theory. He's the formulator of atomic theory. And like... Anybody know Democritus in a big influence on you? (laughs) No. (laughs) It may be intellectually and scientifically true that everything's just atomic, but... And? (laughs) Now what? So, because the issue is not... That's not how we are. That's not what a human is. That's not how they think. That's how they feel. That's not how they conduct themselves. It doesn't have enough to make you live. And so... The Dhamma is something that allows you to do that. So it's an approach to reality that is human, and it's about where you really live. The way we see things can be whatever's useful, and the experience of loving kindness, this sublime swelling of emotion, or the other ones, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, are just so gorgeous, but that what we really want to do is get there. We don't want to worry too much whether whether we're following a bunch of rules or how realistic we are, because it's not the point. The point is not whether anybody's lovable or not. It's to get there. And when we get there, it's a very different view of things. It's impersonal, insubstantial. And that's kind of why we make this Buddha image there. There's nothing personal about it, right? There's no face to it. It's more or less absent, the absence of the Buddha. This is close to when the Buddha says, you cannot see the Buddha. But if you see Dhamma, then you see the Buddha. So if you're looking for the Buddha in there, there's just an outline suggesting things. And mostly what it's suggesting is there's nothing there. (laughs) It's absent. This is the issue when you have different cultures, like our Buddha image up there is this one, the marble one, has came from Vietnam, actually. A Vietnamese lady donated it, and she had it specially carved there. It's marble from the special mountain, a white marble mountain. But she had a Western nose put on it, so it looks like you guys. <laughs> Big noses. <laughs> from the Asian perspective. (laughs) But that's a lot of trouble to go with, isn't it? Personalizing, every culture has to transform their Buddha images into something that looks like them and on and on. After the Buddha died, there were no Buddha statues. And of course, during the suttas, you will never see a monk walks into a sala bows to a Buddha statue. In the entire suttas, there are no Buddha statues. There's no nothing unless you meet the Buddha himself. You can't bow to the Buddha. It's a long time afterwards we develop these other forms, and uh, in some way these forms pin us down. They start to... I mean, there were good attempts by artists to allow your imagination to to develop. By the way, some of the Buddha images are very exaggerated, huge long ears and sometimes uh, very long arms and of uh, gigantic proportions, you know, they're... 50 feet tall or we were in fact uh, Kusala is working on some we're going to do some footprints here footprints of the Buddha so we're talking about them and I told her by the way they can be 12 feet long you know we left big footprints footprints are much closer to the time so much closer to the essence of what the Buddha is saying or an empty seat and that's another what was left during the lifetime of the Buddha the they put out a seat in case he visited, because he'd sometimes drop in at an unexpected time, just wandering around. So they started to put a seat out in case he dropped in. And then as the monasteries grew, he couldn't cover all the monasteries by any means. So mostly that seat might have been unoccupied for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. After he died, they kept the seat. So that was... The first legacy, the remembrance, and it's so close to the way the Buddha talked, it's just an empty seat. And then some places he went, you know, he left a footprint in the mud or whatever, and they, they made a cast of it and they kept the footprints around, just some aspect of them. And of course, a few remnants from the funeral where there's just a few hairs or a few little debris from the body. That's all. And those are more depersonalized in some ways. It just, just allows you to project, you know, that experience of having read a book that you really loved, and then the movie comes out. And you go see the movie, and it's never as good as the book. You know? so, <laughs> why is that? Because you, you, the characters are not who you saw in the book. And if you try to explain that to a kid, the characters you saw, wait a sec, there are no pictures in that book. How did you see anybody from all those little black squiggles? Well, that's the way the mind works, isn't it? And it's closer to reality. Sometimes it's more real than than real. Maybe the movie is boring because it's too real, you know. There's a huge level of the mind functions differently than the literal. It's not literal. It's abstract. It's about feeling. It's how it feels. You're really invited. In these things, not to follow a kind of strict technique or method for this, but to feel the spaciousness of the opportunity to just find your way to this emotion. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter how you get there. He's giving you hints about how to get there by just saying towards the north. Open your heart to the north. Open your heart to the south. Open your heart to the east. Open your heart to the West. Purely, what's in the North? Beings. (laughs) Not any particular beings, just beings. So it might be so important to kind of get away from the individuality and the personal to get this feeling. It's a vast and open and doesn't require concrete beings. One of the images I use is... uh, Imagining you're in a kind of a theater with curtain. Well, when you go to a theater, the curtain is closed, and then there's something going to be revealed behind that curtain. So imagine that you hear all kinds of voices and sounds back there behind the curtain. You know there's humans. Maybe there's some sounds of cats or dogs or whatever. Something back there. You know that beings are back there, but you can't see them. And so you don't know who's back there. So that's close to this radiation of loving-kindness. All you know is there's beings back there. And you know how beings are. The Buddha explains to you a few things that are in common with all beings. One is that they suffer. If you're conscious at all, you will have problems. And if you're not conscious at all, you're not a being. You're a rock or a stone, a log of wood. The Buddhist funeral rite says, this body lies on the ground like the log of wood. Consciousness has departed. Not conscious, no problem. <laughs> that body has no problems, no consciousness. Consciousness, as long as you're conscious. And untrained consciousness is susceptible to friction, to tension, to stress, to pain. And because it's untrained, it's just a matter of time till it falls into it again. And everybody knows what that's like. We also attribute it to other beings, so we know what it's like to suffer. And so this also arouses some sympathy and empathy for other beings. And this empathy allows us to open the heart as well, to see the situation we're in. And also just a reflection on death allows us to... uh, look beyond the game because it, you know when you stay within the life then there's kind of a game that goes on there is winning and losing but a game ends and then there's no winning and losing and when you stop with the winning and losing there's more space around that so when you're reflecting loving kindness and death go together nicely our enemies will die our loved ones will die and strangers will die, we will all die. That perspective kind of gentles you out and reminds you that is just a game, and the game ends. And if you're peaceful enough while you're reflecting on that, then you lose the seriousness of the game, and maybe you decide that it's much better to play in the game. And the rules for it from the perspective of death everything changes when you don't take the rules seriously, then it's just a playful game. So remember the uh, Franciscan monks being playful with the game. So when the bandits came and stole all their food a couple of times, they didn't round up the posse and go and hang them, as was the fashion of the day. They went up and fed them. (laughs) Now that's playful. (laughs) That's cute, you know. That is the way to play the game. When the loving kindness is cultivated, you can do things like that. I remember hearing this story about uh, some Christian minister in the States. He was six foot eight, very imposing gentleman, <laughs> and very very determined to spread the gospel, etc. But he was a real Christian. And uh, somebody was said that until you got on his bad side, you never knew what it was like to be loved. And I thought, that's cool. I, you can imagine getting on the bad side of somebody six foot eight and expecting the normal like response to it. And him having understood that isn't the instructions. Love thine enemy. So you never knew. what it was to be loved until you got on his wrong side. And that's a nice little thing to remember. Anybody get on your wrong side? See if you can pull it off. See if you can say, this is a really good opportunity for loving kindness when they get on my wrong side. You're playing a different game now. It's that, come on, don't get serious. Just because you get on somebody's wrong side or somebody gets on your wrong side, you get all serious on me. (laughs) Loving kindness is never serious. It never gets grim. It never plays that game. Never. It has lightness to it. That's why, in some ways, humor is a kind of a hint of loving kindness. When you're with your friends and you love your friends, you laugh. Because there's no threat and there's no tension And there's a certain amount of loving-kindness there, and laughter is close to that. All these things are clues and strategies and games. They're creative, and they're artistic games that you play. Look, the whole Buddhist world is one of the most prolific inventors of beautiful buildings and beautiful paintings and beautiful sculpture and It's just a continuous work of art dedicated to making you less serious so that you don't worry about dying and stuff like that. You don't take it seriously. And you don't take yourself seriously because that's... To be serious is to have a self. If you have no self, how can you be serious? The Buddha is never serious. He's not laughing like a fool all the time, (laughs) In fact, it's one of the rules for monks, don't go laughing in the village. Don't go laughing loudly in the village. (laughs) And also, you're not supposed to tickle each other in the water. (laughs) You're not supposed to tickle each other, and you're not supposed to splash laughingly in the water. Which is, I mean, why would monks be splashing laughingly in the water? Well, because you can start to get pretty lighthearted in the robes. I lived in a monastery on a lake one time. In Thailand, and we had to take a canoe and boats across to on our arms round every day, so we were always around the lake and we went swimming in the lake as well. The ties were not many of them don 't know how to swim. <laughs> I was in a boatload of them, and the boat was i don 't know whether you 've seen those canal boats, but they have a huge like chevy gm engine or something mounted way up high, and a great, huge, long propeller, and a 12-year-old is running it. There's no... There's no... All of the belts are whirling at furious... Don't put your hands in there, because it's, there's no protection to it. It's thundering, and taking you across the lake in this very dubious canal boat, which is not supposed to be on open water. And you, me, the only one that can swim and 15 Thai monks. I'm thinking, if we go over. (laughs) We did swim, and it is, uh, you know, it's lighthearted. It's nice to bathe in the lake and to swim in the lake. It's lighthearted. But we try to uh, keep to the Benaya rules, not to sport with laughter in the lake. (laughs) You're allowed to smile, though. (laughs) It's nice, it's... What a strange and beautiful thing. These guys living off in the woods, apparently doing nothing all day long, (laughs) except getting into a high-hazard boat every day, (laughs) and staying light. And that's a very important thing for the world, is that somebody has to do that. (laughs) Somebody needs to not take it seriously, And uh, that's the invitation to you as well, is to just start to play more. When you associate with grim people, you start to think it's serious. They can convince you it's utterly serious. Melodramatic people, too. Everything seems to be a drama. (laughs) Seems. But then there are people who are light, and it's not a melodrama. It's just faintly funny, that's all. So... You have to associate with that and to find some help. So that's the first blessing in life, is not to associate with the serious. No, actually, it's not to associate with the foolish, which is almost identical to the serious. To associate with the lighthearted or the wise. Both buoyancy of body and lightness of mind, and these are part of every expression of ordinary like English, because that's the way it feels. The heart is light. The mind is full of light. We even have the same word, like light and light. This is something that you have to establish even before any kind of meditation. Meditation is not serious. And when you sit down to jhana yourself, (laughs) you sit down ready to receive a laser through your forehead, you know, it's like, I shall be one-pointed. No, it just isn't that way. You're just focusing the binoculars. You're looking out at the stars and you're focusing the binoculars looking at the moon. Open mouth, just staring at the moon through the binoculars. Binoculars are just amplifications, right? And meditation is simply the attempt to focus your mind, but not like a laser that will burn through a sheet of metal. <laughs> like a pair of binoculars, to focus like that so you don't have to strain your eyes anymore. Your mind is lucid and clear. It's not fuzzy and strained and tense. So that's the idea. The emotional center is energized because it's not burdened. So you've taken off the heavy jackets the clumping winter boots and all of that stuff because you're at the dance. You know, it's a sock hop. <laughs> you fit so much. The clunky boots are off and everything and it just feels good to skate around a little bit on your socks, you know. And this is the description of the body. The body is light. These are the two primary jhana factors. The first thing that distinguishes you, the beginning of supernormal experience is you're happy and you are experiencing pleasure. This is super normal. The only reason why it's different than when you're at a movie or something like that, which is also you can be happy and at ease at a movie, but that's based on outer things. And the Buddha is just saying, darn, you know, that it's so hard to keep up that kind of happiness, lightness stuff out there by sights and sounds and various things. It's just hard to keep it up. So it's really nice that the mind can do it from an inner source. If you can find that, the dangers which are inseparable from sensory experience, the danger of sensory experience is it's treacherous and you can lose it. And then you fall into a sense of despair and depression because what little food you get from the world can be taken away from you by all kinds of ways. It's a dangerous, treacherous, hard to maintain happiness in the world through the senses. And so, if you could find a way out of that, find some inner resource. The Buddha talks, gives a simile about, he's talking to a fellow, he says, Now, there are two kinds of fires, and there, one of them is made with wood. You burn wood and make a fire. What if I could show you how to make a fire without any wood? which would be the better fire? And so the man says, the one without the wood, that's a neat trick. And he says, so there's two kinds of fires. This is the one with the wood is the fires of the sensory experience of the outside world. One without the wood is the fire of the mind well composed, as in samadhi. They're both fires, but one has a different fuel and is a superior. You don't need the coarse fuel of wood. It's just radiantly warm and sustained. We're not trying to deprive you of happiness, and this is quite often misunderstood even by Buddhists. The Buddha renounces the path of pain. He did give it a good shot, and most of the people practicing in India at the time were convinced that the way to escape the dangers of dependency on the sensory world was to burn it out by pain. You would get there to a kind of a higher detached state through pain. And the Buddha gave it a good shot and he realized, you know, this just doesn't lead to any exalted pleasure. This just leads to more pain. This pain leads to pain, leads to pain. So he gave it up and he remembered at that time being a child in ease under the rose apple tree and experiencing a kind of joy which didn't come from the uh, outside world. At that moment, so the story goes, at that moment, he realizes this is the path. But notice, what is the path? He just experienced the first jhana as a child. He remembers that, and he concludes, this is the path. It's the path of happiness. This is blameless. This is, will never lead to something negative this happiness is not to be feared this is a good happiness a pleasure not to be feared a superior pleasure not to be feared. I will follow this so he follows that to enlightenment he follows it through the eighth factor of the path Samadhi is the proximate cause for his enlightenment it's all pleasure from that time on he finds the jhanas it's pleasurable not to be feared no concern about attachment to it or anything like that that is not something you want to worry about it's a pleasure you cannot have it and not have a pleasure it is pleasurable this is why it's a unique path that nobody had discovered before it's the path of pleasure but not worldly pleasure it's the path of a superior he's discovered a superior form of energy he's like nuclear (laughs) no he's like solar (laughs) yeah like us solar so this is a source of boundless energy and pleasurable and the Buddha says please stop with the pain I know that it's going to be tricky if you can't if you recognize that there's a problem with depending on worldly sensory experiences for happiness, the problem is, if you give it up, what's the alternative? So he says, yeah, there is that, but if you can find another source, not only will you give up the worldly stuff, but it will fall away by itself, because this one is superior. There's a few things to tinker with, he has a conversation with a man who is a layperson, is married, has kids, and lives the household life, but he's attained the second stage of enlightenment. He's called Sakadagami. That's not his name. Sakadagami is one who has attained the second stage of enlightenment. But this guy comes to the Buddha, and he says, you know, you know of course, I've attained the Sakadagami, and... I've seen the Dhamma, but still, from time to time, I experience lust and anger. What can I do about that? And the Buddha says, well, one thing is you're living the household life, so it's harder. So this guy's second stage of enlightenment, and still, from time to time, he has lapses. He forgets, and he he gets Involved in sensory pleasures and a little bit of anger comes up and so forth. And the Buddha says, well, because you do not have enough access to alternative forms of pleasure, you drift back into it. So he's got realization. He has vipassanad. He has seen something. Enough to allow him at the second stage of enlightenment. But he still is experiencing the hindrances from time to time. What's the way out of that? The Buddha says the way out of that is you have to cultivate, if you can in your life, you have to cultivate an alternative form of pleasure, and that is samadhi. And then you will not fall into that, and you will accelerate your progress, and you will come to the third stage of enlightenment. In the third stage of enlightenment, one does not experience any more lust or anger. It's over. Now, one is only left with a few attachments, and one of them is samadhi. (laughs) But that's not an attachment to be feared. It's not an attachment to be feared. It's self-eliminating. Its tendency is to go farther and farther and farther in the direction of the path and towards nibbana. That's its nature. It leads onwards. So that's why it's not to be feared. So this cultivation of the pleasure of loving-kindness, the pleasures of compassion and so forth, these are valid and core expressions of the Eightfold Path. And if you can ignite them, then you get this other fire. And then the requirement of the external pleasures tends to fall away by itself. You have this kind of inner inner generator of what you need and humans need happiness you can only endure so long without happiness without pleasure without joy so this is a kind of a facsimile of enlightenment of Nibbana Nibbana is composed of this as well the jhanas are temporary Enlightenment, the temporary facsimile of enlightenment. The Buddha himself says this. So it's endlessly encouraged. The suttas are full of endless encouragement by the Buddha to develop loving kindness and that it's, you cannot do it and not enjoy it. It's joy itself. And he says, quit getting all personal on me. Never mind who you are, who they are, what they are, whatever. It's about the joy. It's about the pleasure of it. Because that leads in the right direction. These are just helpful hints to how to cultivate this loving kindness. It's not personal. But it's very pleasurable. And it's not serious. It's playful.